0: This is a time of courage, a time of intestinal fortitude where white people also have to confront their ignorance. Ignorance is the beginning of enlightenment. It's learning. You can't learn until you confront and wrestle through your ignorance, right mm-hmm. That's what that's, that's the foundation or the, that's the fundamentals of learning. So adults have to embrace the the fear and the risk of being vulnerable. You know what they may say out of just sheer ignorance, is is proven to be untrue. So we we definitely have to uh, to take this opportunity to now do some some deep dive surgery into the systemic issues that allow this thing to exist.
1: I don't know what else we can do. I really don't. If you look at literature, you look at music, you look at movies, you look at marches. We've done it peacefully. We've done it angrily. We've knelt fist in the air. We've used our bodies. That's one of the primary resources we have, our bodies. We've done everything we know to do, and we're still here. Not just incidents, but a culture. I think it takes the white allies to be the voices advocating in solidarity to the white community because They're not going to listen to us necessarily. Not all, some will, but the masses won't listen to us. That's Byron Davis and Phil Allen Jr. And this
2: is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, all season love warriors. It is I, Rich Roll, your host, this is my transmission. Welcome to it. Okay, so as I record this, mass demonstrations continue to spread across the nation and now the world for what I believe is something like the 20th night in a row. And for many, grappling with, recognizing, coming to terms with The vast extent to which things like police abuse, misuse of power, racism, both overt and covert, and the toxic racial divide that persists and that is woven into the very fabric of our society has been a wake up call. But it's important to recognize and to confront that for Black people, for Indigenous people, people of color, that this is just reality. That pain, that violence, that fear is every day. I'm committed to better understanding this dynamic, the history that led to it, the systemic nature of it, the institutions that perpetuate it, and the solutions for its long overdue undoing. And part of that commitment is sharing an increased diversity of voices here on the podcast, hearing more from Black and African American and people of color thought leaders right now in this current moment and moving forward. On that note, today, I reconnect with my friend and fellow swimmer, Byron Davis, along with his friend, my new friend, Pastor Phil Allen Jr. Byron was one of my very first guests on this show, dating all the way back to early 2013, RRP 14. Uh, I suggest you mine through the podcast archive, give that one a listen. Byron is just a wildly inspiring human being. He's overcome quite the obstacles to be this incredible individual. And in that episode, we go deep into his personal story and his journey. Aside from being a former USA national team member, an American record holder, a UCLA All-American, and an Ironman. Byron was just three-tenths of a second shy of becoming the very first African-American to make the USA Olympic swimming team. He remains a role model for thousands of young athletes across the country. He's a sought-after speaker and consultant, and just one of those very special few with an innate penchant for helping other people unlock their inner potential. Phil Allen Jr. is a pastor, a teacher, a poet, and a filmmaker behind the documentary Open Wounds, which delves into the reality of intergenerational trauma through the story of his grandfather's murder and the police's subsequent refusal to investigate it. Phil is also the founding pastor of Own Your Faith, Ministries in Santa Clarita, California, and a second-year PhD student at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he's studying Christian ethics and theology and culture with a focus on Dr. King's theology and ethics, as well as the intersection of race theory and theology. I got a bunch more I want to say about these gentlemen and the conversation to come, but first... My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story. But basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, to put it bluntly, this is what I think an important, at times heavy conversation about what this historic moment represents and what it means to be black in America. It's about the economic history of slavery in the United States. It's about the extent to which racism is perpetuated systemically by way of policy, law, economics, politics, and generations of socialization. It's about the ways in which white supremacy is embedded in our religious, political, educational, and basically every institution in this country. And it's about getting honest about the extent to which and the manner in which the embedded nature of racism persists often completely unconsciously within ourselves myself included. This moment is an important crossroads for this country. It's an opportunity, a potential awakening and a collective responsibility to gain objective clarity on historical truth, to define what our values truly are and and put them into action to dismantle that which is broken, and to rebuild from the ground up, not just our country and our institutions, but ourselves as well. I'm grateful to Byron and Phil for showing up, for being open, for being patient and vulnerable with me, for sharing their perspective on race, their very personal encounters with racism, and their stories of pain. And I'm well aware that this conversation might be uncomfortable for some but I truly believe that conversations like this are crucial if we want to finally transcend our past, if we want to learn, if we want to grow, if we want to do better and lead by example. I, for one, am committed to being teachable, to being challenged, to leaning in, and to being part of positive change. Final note, in the week that has elapsed since we recorded this, Phil decided to make his documentary, Open Wounds, which again is about the lynching of his grandfather and the subsequent police cover-up, available on Vimeo On Demand. It's a powerful 41 minutes. I strongly suggest you check it out and you can find a link to that film in the show notes or on Phil's website at philallenjr, philallenjr.com slash doc. Second, Phil is also an amazing poet and spoken word artist. And I was remiss in not exploring this with him during the podcast. I sincerely regret not asking him to perform one of his pieces. So I also encourage you to check out his art on his YouTube page, which I've also linked in the show notes. And you should start with his poem, Colorblind But Not Colorless, which I found particularly powerful. Finally, and especially to those who maybe feeling some resistance to this conversation, I would encourage you to watch the documentary 13th on Netflix if you haven't already, which I think does an amazing job at contextualizing and explaining the systemic aspect of racism. I rewatched it with my family the other night and uh, it's just unbelievably powerful and illuminating. To echo Cornell West, what we don't need are lukewarm folk. We don't need summer soldiers. What we need are all season love warriors. And it is in that spirit that I give you, Byron Davis and Phil Allen Jr. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for doing this.
0: Thank you, man. This is, Thanks, this man. is great.
2: It's good to have you guys here. So why don't we start with uh, just you guys briefly introducing yourselves, kind of what you do. And then perhaps we can pivot into taking a 10,000 foot view on kind of where we're at right now.
1: Okay. Well, my name is Phil Allen. I'm a founding pastor of Own Your Faith Ministries in Santa Clarita, California. Um, I'm a second year PhD student at Fuller Theological Seminary, studying Christian ethics and theology and culture. Mm. Um, And my my focus um, is Dr. King's um, theology and ethics, um, as well as the intersection of race theory and theology. Mm. Um, so that's my my study and my research will center on that. Um, I'm an author and filmmaker, just produced a short film, Open Wounds, um, about my grandfather's murder in 1953. Um, family never got justice. And it talks a lot about intergenerational trauma from racial tragedies. And um, systems and structures and and where do we go? What do we do now? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I tried to find the film online. I watched the trailer, but yeah. it's not it's not publicly available right not now, yet. right? Yeah, not yeah, yeah.
1: soon, soon. Uh huh. Yeah, but I know the I know the producers. So I can get you a link. All right,
2: man. <laughs> That's the <a> deal. <laughs> That's I'd like to see it. And what does that mean, Christian ethics? Maybe explain that a little bit.
1: Just um, ethics. You know, we have terms like social ethics. Um, um, ethics in particular, context, but it's just a biblically informed, um, um, the s- scripture informing the, the ethics. And w- how we, um, like right now, how do we respond to uh, a, a murder that we see on, on camera for the world to see? How do we respond in a biblically informed manner to this? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we respond to um, what's happening in politics? How does the Bible um, inform that? Mm-hmm. So,
2: Yeah, it would seem that uh, everything that's happening right now, like your 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 whole life and everything that you've been studying has been preparing
1: you for this moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to release the film. I was trying to get it in film festivals. And when this happened, people who have seen it, because I've screened it a few times in L.A., Said you, you got to show the film, you got to show the film, right? And and I thought about it this past week, and I said, you know what, this is the time. Um, and there's, there, there's, there are other projects I want to do, and so maybe this is, maybe this is what this is for. Because We did it in six months, right? We filmed, edited, produced, and um, screened it within six months. Mm. Raised the funds, um, and so maybe this is this is what that was for.
2: <laughs> yeah, I support that. I mean, I think you could take it to a bunch of film festivals which now are all on hold or don't yes. exist anymore <laughs> yes. for, you know, a couple small audiences or you could release it publicly and attract a wide amount of attention yes. to the issue. I mean, essentially the film is about your grandfather who was, you know, without mincing words, lynched, right? Yes. And kind of getting to the bottom of what happened and how that, you know, played out and was covered up.
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and how it affected um, my grandmother 60 years later. Mm-hmm. She still, the trauma was still there. She couldn't, couldn't talk about it. And then how it affected my father um, when he found out that his father was killed by a man that lived a few doors down from them. Mm-hmm. And um, it changed his life. And so that was the man who raised me. Or who was my father. Right. So therefore, there's going to be some things going on in my life um, that I'm dealing with because of what's been passed on to me. And I had no idea the root of it. Yeah. And so I started to do this research. And I realized um, where the pain, my grandmother's pain was, like why she was the way she was. right? Why my father was the way he was. And it actually led to um, having more compassion for my dad when I first found out, because we didn't have a good relationship. And um, there was a lot of forgiveness that needed to happen on my part.
2: Because of the trauma that he experienced that got passed down and wasn't ever fully processed or communicated to you in a way where you guys could get past it.
1: Yeah, my father, he never, he, you know, we had a conversation a few years ago where he was healing or grieving his mother and my uncle, his brother's death, which were like seven months apart. And I asked him, do you think you are grieving your father's death too? He said, well, I never knew my father. I was two when he died. He was two, right. And I said, that's my point. Because, you know, domestic violence, I grew up in domestic violence. I saw it for the first 15 years of my life. Um, My father had drug addiction, alcohol addiction, anger, serious anger problems. And, and there was hate in my heart towards my dad. And so when I found this out, then it was like, wait a minute. He was nine when he found out. He's pro- He's still processing this mm. stuff. Like, what would I do if I was nine years old and I found out that my father was killed? Yeah. Right? So it led me to... to To forgive. The
2: story was that he fell off a boat or something like that?
1: They say he fell off a boat, but my grandmother um, told me her father um, went to the funeral home and and told the funeral director, don't do anything to the body until I get there. And he got there and he saw the bullet hole in the back of his head or neck. Mm -hmm. Um, His body came up um, a couple of days later. And so um, they know it was murder. Um, and then I, I recently found out the man who shot him confessed it before he passed away. Mm. Um, someone knew him, and he was in his later years, and and he had confessed. I guess he felt he could trust that person, right? Um, and he confessed it, but he's no longer here, so right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's a justice that could never be redressed. Absolutely. And what does that do to a you know a, a young man at age nine when he finds out, and how does he carry that throughout his life, and 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 pass it along? Yep. Yeah. Well, I want to get into that a little bit more deeply, but Byron,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I mean, we go way back.
0: Yeah, we go way back. I'll be quick. <laughs> uh, of course, you and uh, Rich, you and I, uh, you were at Stanford. I was UCLA swimming, and um, you know, I'm a former athlete turned speaker uh, consultant. Uh, Phil and I. Uh, became you know good friends and and brothers when we were both on staff at a at a church called Shepherd Church out in Porter Ranch, um, but we've been uh, connected for uh, you know close to fifteen years now, 13, thirteen, fifteen years, and both of both he and I, um, it, you know, didn't necessarily start out in this journey of, of of becoming activists in this issue, but by by nature of you know how he grew up, how I grew up, um uh it and even in the climate that we're in now it uh it it just makes sense mm-hmm. and uh you know i think part of our our mission and our our goal our heart is to elevate the conversation around race and and around um uh you know superiority around racism and you know just around people groups of people in their silos uh constantly pointing out you know the wrong in other people mm-hmm. and causing so much division that we don't get smart minds on all sides working together to actually address and deal and ultimately heal the problem. Right, he's so humble, man, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> I mean, let's just, it, it, it. let's just like lay it out for people that it. are watching or listening. Like Byron was, Byron's mm. a legend. Like this guy mm. yes. was an incredible athlete, yes. you know? Incre- mm. Were you the first? African American to make the USA national team.
0: Um, Actually, um, no. There was one uh, person um, right before me. Now I'm blanking, which is terrible. Um, But yeah, I was I was one of the first.
2: Right, and just three tenths of a second separated you from becoming the first African American to make a USA. Uh, Olympic team in swimming yeah. I was yeah. there at mm. Olympic trials I watched that race because <laughs> wow. um, Mark Henderson was my you know teammate yeah. going yep. way back um, but I have and we talked about this and Byron was on the podcast in the very early days I think it was episode 17 and we went through his whole life story so I encourage everybody to go back and, and listen to that mm. um, to get a full you know picture of, of your life, but you had to overcome incredible obstacles to, you know, not just become the athlete that you became, but to become the man, the father, and the husband that you are today. <laughs> um, and I got nothing but, you know, mad respect for, you know, that journey that you went on. And you've always comported yourself with just tremendous um, grace and, and just composure through what I would imagine, you know, was incredibly difficult. At times, and the fact that you're you, you kind of just you know didn't even mention any of those things. I just want mm-hmm. to make sure that people really understood. Like I remember, you know, we talked about this before, but I remember being at swim meets and and seeing Byron on the deck, and he was just the guy was like a Greek god. It was incredible, <laughs> you know, watching this guy perform. That's um, and so I'm you know honored to be your friend and to have you guys here today. So why don't we? I want to get your perspective on on you know, what's going on right now from like a 10,000 foot view. Like, how are you perceiving the current climate and series of events that we're seeing unfold like rapidly? Like everything is accelerating very quickly um, right now. But give me a sense of kind of where your head is at.
1: <sighs> I, I, the first thing that comes to mind is um, pain is manifesting itself. Um, particularly from the black community, Um, because George Floyd represents a lineage of black bodies that die senselessly. It just so happens there was a camera to capture it. And I don't know many African-American men particularly that don't have stories, whether it's police officers or civilians, where it could turn ugly, it could lead to something like that because you come across people that just wanna flex um, authority or superiority. Um, I've, I've got those stories. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, this, this last um, incident impacted me harder than the others. Because? Well, what's interesting is I, I realized on Thursday, just a few days ago, that my body responded when I saw the video, but my mind did not understand why this thing was so heavy until a a few days ago. So when I saw it, there's this response here, um, that this traumatic response in my body, and my mind knew that this was heavy. I'm, I'm, I'm crying throughout the day. I can't write. Uh, I can't study and read. And then a few days ago, I realized this is why, because it took me back 19 years to my personal experience in New York, being pulled over, profiled. And it didn't lead to brutality or anything, but he was instigating me, the cop. He told me what he could do, and there was nothing I could do about it. And he stood in front of me and he stared at me. And I, I, I guarantee you, if he stood in front of me today, I could, or if he was in a lineup, I could point him out mm. 19 years later. So I never forgot that look. So when I saw the cop's eyes, that's what did it.
2: it meaning took, meaning, to, like I'm, I'm the
1: one in control here. Th- mm-hmm. This evil and this, this evilness, hate, mm-hmm. like he was looking at me like he despised me. And it was, he was just a, like, he was in my face right here, maybe not even this far away and just staring at me. And I wouldn't bow my head. I just stared back at him. And when I saw the cop's eyes, it reminded me. It took me back. And I said, mm-hmm. "That's why this is so heavy for me."
2: There was something just so brazen about it and yes. casual. Mm-hmm. And there was awareness. There was an awareness that they were being filmed, and it didn't seem it to didn't matter. matter. And I think right. that is really chilling. Yes. Yes.
0: And, and I just to add, um, I think. One, I I am grateful that it was finally, that was finally captured on video because uh, events up until this point, again, this isn't the first uh, incident of police abuse and brutality that's been caught on video. Um, But what was caught was you had a police officer who in his posture had full control over the situation and intentionally decided to put his hand in his pocket and stand in a position of dominance mm-hmm. over this black man until the black man died. Mm-hmm. The, I, capturing that.
2: With other officers, with other standing, officers standing witness
0: of that. And one officer, you know, timidly even suggesting, hey, I think we got this under control. And him like, no, you know, you're a rookie on the job. You go over there you know, that all was captured. And I think for the first time uh in this age of social media, more people actually saw that. Um, Not a black kid running away and being shot, mm-hmm. you know, or brutally being beat up. And we come in halfway through the video. We don't know seeing, the story in the, the narrative. Right. We, we, we were able to see that. Um I think that's Uh, In addition to pain, I think it also evokes a lot of anger uh, among the African-American community because this is what we speak about behind closed doors all the way to the 21st century. I'll never forget. My son, right before he went off to college, he's a freshman at USC now, he and I um, in sophomore year had the talk. And what, what's the talk? It's the talk that black men have with their black sons and nephews mm-hmm. about how to engage in an in encounter, interact with the police if you're pulled over or anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. I actually had to have a t- the talk with my son. Mm-hmm. That's gone on for, I mean, we can't even count. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, there is a palpable sense that this is an inflection point and what, you know, allowed this moment to you know capture the the attention of the world in in such a huge way. Um, I, you know, seems to be unclear. Like, is it is it? The, it seems to be that it's the confluence of a bunch of these events happening in you know serial fashion. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. compounded by you know people being cloistered in their homes and Mm -hmm. jobs being stripped away. Like there's a rawness right now to everybody that I think has contributed to this just being an extraordinary flashpoint Mm -hmm. for not just America, but the world. And I'm interested in whether you think that there is the possibility that this is going to be different. We've been here before. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. were here in Ferguson in 2014. And there was a sense that things were going to change and they didn't really change. Mm-hmm. The, the world was paying attention very closely for a short period of time and then it moved on. I'm sure in 1968, there was a sense that yeah. we were going to emerge into a post-race nation and we've made progress but we've fallen far short of that mark. So. Do you feel like we're now in a position to make the changes that are necessary to make and and what are those changes
1: I think we are um, I, I'm, I'm I'm skeptical, but I think we have the potential to make significant change um, like you said, we've been here multiple times before um, that's why, one reason why I'm a little skeptical but if we if if we don't make the mistake of just simply responding to the incident, the moment, like that's the only thing that we're responding to. And then once it dies down, we think everything is okay. Maybe justice is served and they go to the cops, go Mm -hmm. to to, to prison um, and the family may get some money. And so justice is served. So now let's move on. I think this is a moment where, and I, I say this all the time to the white community, to be baptized, to be immersed, in a culture, a history, a per- perspectives um, that are not your own. So I talk to, I'll teach a class or I'll, I'll preach or, or, or have a workshop. And one of the things I hear, one of the most consistent things I hear is, I never knew that. Cause I usually will do a survey of history to, to walk us, go back and bring us to this point. Mm-hmm. So people can get context and people are stunned. Because they never knew, they never knew Emmett Till. They never knew about the amount of, the extent of lynching. They never knew that veterans, um, African American veterans from the war, World War II, would come back, and many of them were lynched uh, because now they're a threat. They they have been empowered as soldiers, and they wanted equal, but they would be lynched or killed or or, or beaten, what have you. And people just didn't know the extent of this. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, they think it's just these particular isolated incidents. Then, the systemic, the structural, the institutional racism, the laws and policies from decades ago that we're living out the legacy of today that perpetuate um, disparities along racial lines, um, where the, it doesn't need to be an individual doing something. Mm-hmm. The laws and policies do them for you as a right, friend. Right. That of mine, is
2: the definition right. of systemic. Yes. yes. Right. It yes. doesn't yes. matter. Right. Like. The narrative that gets spun is there is no systemic racism. I'm not racist. I don't have racist friends, but the very definition of systemic means that you don't have to be individually racist. You can opt out of that completely. If nobody's racist, the system is constructed in a manner that still leans towards favoring those that have against those that have not. And it will continue to repress the African-American community until it's deconstructed and rebuilt with checks and balances yes. that ensure, you know, proper equality and freedom for all.
1: Yep.
0: And that's, okay.
1: Well, one, one other thing, I think one thing that is different now is it's not just black folks angry. Like when you go to these protests, like mm-hmm. you said, you see everybody there. Now my mm-hmm. hope is that from this, the bat. that's why I use the term baptized, now immerse yourself in understanding how we got here. Because if we don't, we will compound the issue mm-hmm. trying to fix it, especially trying to fix it really quick. Mm. Uh, we'll just compound the issue because we don't understand it fully. Mm. So that's why, that's one reason it gives me a little bit of hope. This is different because um, the people who I see are are angry and out there. It's multicultural, it's not just primarily black people. Yeah, that but, has been a big difference.
0: Go ahead. Right, history has always been told from the perspective of the victors, right? Right. People who can control the narrative. And so when you, when you look at the, the foundation in the history of the United States of America, it was founded on the backs of slavery. Okay? I mean, even when you just go all the way back to when you had the uh, Europeans coming over and uh, in, in conquest and adventure, it was economically driven, Right. It, it was all that the foundation. And when they tried to initially uh, enslave uh, in, indigenous people and um, Native Americans, that didn't work out very well because Native Americans knew the lay of the land. They could, You couldn't keep them captive. And they found an economic model that was actually going to work. And so from the very beginning of our history, all the way through up and through today, you see the The systemic uh, scaffolding of uh, white supremacy embedded in the system, and uh, you know you you ask the question you know can there be change there there won't be change until uh, those who have a vested interest in keeping the status quo the mm-hmm. way it is are willing to challenge their own worldview and when their blind spots are actually pointed out have the courage to change mm-hmm. because then then that's going to actually shift a lot of the power and a lot of the privilege that exists even to today
2: yeah people don't like to do that though exactly oh, yeah. right <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. right, right
0: and and that's where it's scary yeah and and so when you uh, when you get this this narrative a good book um Uh, Is is a book called White uh, uh, Fragility Mm -hmm. by Rob D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo, thank you. uh, That actually speaks, uh, puts a lot of good language and articulates this big fear that many white people have about confronting their own racism, Uh, because you don't necessarily have to be a person that hates overtly hates another person by because of their skin color. To still perpetuate Mm -hmm. racism. Um, You just have to recognize when you are asserting yourself and catch yourself, or one has to catch themselves on what is the benchmark and the gold standard or the norm by which they define and rate everything else. You know, uh, my daughter, for instance, Uh, you know, when a white kid comes up to her, not meaning anything malicious. And tells her, "You look cute for a black girl," mm. <laughs> right? Right. It's 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 this idea of wait a minute, I'm comparing her beauty to a standard that I'm not even aware mm. that I'm even comparing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, did you did legitimacy- a video
2: clip that was going around with the the Australian newscaster who was interviewing the the twin women who who. I think they were twins and they came from a, a, a mixed race, mixed race parents. And one looked very white and one looked very black. And And the newscaster was complimenting the, the white looking twin and, wow. and saying, you know, good on you that you got the white. <laughs> was just like, <laughs> wow. you know, yeah.
0: It, it's that, it's, yeah. that is prevalent. And um, that's baked into uh, every facet of our system.
2: I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadney. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I can only speak to my own experience as a white privileged male and you know, I can tell you that that I've had to do my own soul searching to look for you know where i've I was gonna say like gone awry, but I think that's the wrong phrase, like more where my blind spots are in all of this um you know, have I done an adequate job of ensuring that I have a diversity of voices on the podcast, and what are the things that I'm doing you know throughout my daily life that I'm not consciously aware of mm. but yet are? Part of the problem, right um, and I think you know one of the things that i've been been struggling with over the last couple of weeks as somebody who has a platform is how do I communicate about this and what i've what I've noticed in myself is a resistance to speaking because I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I'm afraid that if I say this, it's going to be misinterpreted, I don't care about people being you know like the people the trolls and all that like that that doesn't bother me at all but I do want to get this right and mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm effective in my communication and I think that that but that fear of of needing or wanting it to be as accurate as possible has prevented me from speaking up or as um or as frequently as I could and 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 should be doing and I think that's Something that's probably, you know, a common thing that a lot of, you know, white people have right now. So, mm. you know, what are, what are the questions, like, what is the right question to ask right now? Like, if you're speaking to a white person, like, what are the things that they should be thinking about? And how can they contribute and participate in this in the most effective way?
1: You know, I, I think a, a great question is, should be asking, how did we get here? Um, because I think a lot I, I listen to a lot of people speak as if they have the answers, again, because of this event and recent events. And the anger that you see is not just because of these events. This is anger that stretches back 400 years. because when, when as an African American, in our community, when we see something happen, it's never just about the thing that happened. Mm-hmm. It's typically about the history this is another thing that's happening. So it, it's like, it's a, sub, it's a natural thing. Um, we don't just look at Arbery's situation. We don't just look at George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We literally, it's like, a, it's like a file that you just recall the faces and names like that. Or I could go back to Emmett Till immediately. I could and go your back- own personal experiences. Yeah, personal right? experiences. So I think a good question to ask is, how did we get here? And I don't think enough people- ask that question. Um, I think for one one reason, it's gonna force people, particularly white folks, to look at this country differently. It's gonna force them to, you talk about white fragility, what, what D'Angelo's was talking about, it it forces them to look at themselves because uh, to be American subconsciously is to be white. Mm-hmm. Right, and then everything else is measured against that. I mean, I've had people say it in conversations where a guy would say, "Yeah, I was in this at this in this room, and it was a bunch of people, it was diverse, you know. And I, you know, this, Americans were there, and then he began to to list the African American or the Black folks, Hispanics. They weren't American, I guess. <laughs> right. But he when he was saying American, he was talking about the white folks that were there. Mm-hmm. And he did this. He he wasn't a bad person. He was a great guy, but subconsciously he just associated. American with white, that's Mm -hmm. typically what happens. And so to look at how we got here is to now have to open up yourselves to seeing this country differently. Because I always ask the question, when you say America is so great, what's your definition of greatness and when? Mm. Because if you're talking about power, like military might and prosperity, certainly. If you're talking morally and, and being a just society, you have to you have to go back and help me understand when was that? Because there's always been systemic and legalized oppression in this country. There's never been a decade, there's never been a time in history, in our history, that it wasn't the case. Mm. And so I challenge that notion of greatness. Do we have the potential to be absolutely? And so I think.
0: How do we get here is a great question to ask and in addition to that also um I think people have to this is a time of courage, a time of uh intestinal fortitude where uh white people also have to confront uh their ignorance uh when when we don't know and that's exposed that's vulnerable and and it doesn't i mean this this goes beyond race this is just human nature right mm-hmm. human condition if if we're not something uh, if we don't know something and uh and and our current idea or point of view or or answer that we thought was true uh is shown not to be by just based on evidence that's a very vulnerable position to be in okay no one likes their their ignorance exposed but if you look at that even that term ignorance from just a sheer educational uh definition ignorance is the beginning of of enlightenment it's of, it's learning you have to you can't learn until you confront and wrestle through your ignorance right mm-hmm. that's what that's that's the foundation or the that's the fundamentals of learning so adults have to embrace um and the the fear and the risk of being vulnerable um you know when when they what they may say out of just sheer ignorance uh is is proven to be untrue
2: Well, it requires a certain humility too. And I'm uplifted because I'm seeing a willingness to embrace this conversation in a way that that I can't recall in my lifetime. And Mm -hmm. that that gives me hope, but it's juxtaposed against a climate and a culture that is more deeply entrenched in the in being right and mm-hmm. their silos and you know the division that we're seeing right now mm-hmm. i it's it's sort of a war between those two things right now mm-hmm. you know social media fomenting this division across america where people just want to yell at each other and no one is taking a pause to actually listen and take stock and you know, perform a little bit of, you know, forensic self-analysis. That's it. But I think these events have led us to a point where we are seeing a certain portion of the population doing that. I'm attempting to do that here today. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the only path to healing and to and to really reconstructing society ar- around more equitable lines.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, Rich, I think you're totally right. You hit the nail on the head. You, you have to be willing to have those kind of conversations when you can get uh when intelligent uh people are are stuck in their silos and their echo chambers uh and and spend more energy trying to defend their position than admit that this is a multifaceted complex uh problem that is going to take rigorous and consistent attention to in order to really write in order to really solve the problem uh I- until we 're willing to to really embrace that then uh, it's it 's going to be an uphill battle it 's going to be hard because mm. we are we we feel more comfortable when we think we 're right or when we have the upper hand and so when you have people on all sides digging in and you know, having good points on every side, but spending most of our energy trying to point out where and why the other side is wrong, as opposed to instead of being on opposite sides of the table coming together on one side and actually pouring all of that energy into the problem. Um, I, I think that's 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 the heavy lifting that has to in, in conversations like this is a start. But I think what, what a uh, message we want to continue to to really advocate is: uh, after the protesting, after the news cycle, you know, has died down, after you know the the shift in attention moves to something else, mm-hmm. uh, will we have enough boots on the ground committed to to wrestling within the trenches to right the wrong that we clearly see right now?
2: Yeah, yeah. that energy has to get channeled into some kind of productive change that that is you know, architected around strategies and tactics to yeah. actually, you know, enact the changes that are necessary rather mm-hmm. than just, you know, sort of outrage that just dis- dissipates into the atmosphere. Right.
0: Which yeah. is, again, um, why you hear people really pointing the spotlight on the dysfunction within the, the justice system. Uh, and, and you get a lot of people on one side Saying you know that's just those are just bad apple cops, mm. and uh, deflecting the attention on no, this is just if we look at it in terms of a virus, this is just a flare up of 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 something that you know is still alive on the inside, mm-hmm. and uh, what we're seeing is just a flare up happening. But if we don't, if we just deal with the the surface, you know, issue. And not deal with the root cause on the inside, it's just going to be a matter of time before this little thing heals. But in uh, months, weeks, years, another flare-up happens. Mm. So we, we definitely have to uh, to take this opportunity to now do some some deep dive surgery into the systemic issues that allow this thing to to exist.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think listening to you,
0: Byron. I think one of the
1: things to to look at is. Um, The power dynamics. Um, When you come to the table, and we we, we're talking about division, and each each side, everyone wants to be right. Um, When you come to the table, you have to relinquish power because there has to be a compromise. Well, as an African American man, I come to the table. I'm already lack. I'm already behind. Already, I'm at the. I'm marginalized already. I don't want to let go of power. Whatever power I do have, I need to have that one to protect myself at this table to speak up for myself. Cause I don't have much. When a white person comes to the table, they're used to having power, not even not as an individual necessarily, but representing the group that's in power. And, and they get to decide how
2: much power everybody else has. Right.
1: And that's uncomfortable if you have to relinquish that to come to the table, to have discussion, right? So it's uncomfortable for both sides. It's, it's a power struggle, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how you I don't know how you self-police that. I don't know how you hold each other accountable. Um, But that's, that's, that's what I'm hearing. Cause I know when I come to the table, Mm -hmm. I'm coming girded up because I don't know when, I don't know when the next time I'm going to be at the table. Mm -hmm. I don't know what decisions are going to be made that's going to affect my life. So I have to come with my power, Mm -hmm. my agency, and then, my white brothers and sisters, when they come to the table, they're used to being, it's natural to be in that position. I've been in these meetings before, even in the church, where I, I see this and I have to flex. I have to assert myself because if I don't, I will get crushed. And then it becomes this battle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I'm looked at as the person who's out of you control. Yeah, why are you being so aggressive? Yeah, yeah, the, I'm the, the, the angry, angry black, black man, right? right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. no, just because you're composed and I'm passionate over here. I'm frustrated because you have this power and you're trying to assert that, impose that upon me. And I'm not letting you. Mm. So I'm the one that's out of control. I'm the angry black guy. And so that's where the the struggle comes in. I just had a conversation with a pastor <laughs> um, recently and it didn't go well. I mean, it, it was bad. And I didn't know, I didn't really know the guy, but it was bad. And I, I saw the power dynamics in there, mm. Right. And um, I wasn't gonna relinquish mine because I wasn't gonna let him dictate for me, one, how I should respond Mm. to this George Floyd situation. I wasn't gonna let him dictate to me um, my understanding of racism. Like literally, this is all I do every day, every week. Mm.
2: Other than bald-faced racism and these systemic problems that have created these institutions that... um, Create inequality. A huge uh, obstacle or opposing force to Black Lives Matter is a huge swath of underprivileged, disenfranchised white Americans who have lost their jobs or are seeing, you know, declines in their in their ability to make a living, et cetera. Who are who are hurting um, and it seems to me that that's the most activated group of people mm-hmm. who because they because they feel like they're 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 not being heard right so right. so their natural inclination is to voice their you know anger in an unproductive way by opposing this movement
0: yeah
2: and i think you have to on some level that like that that has to be addressed in order for everybody to come to the table to compromise, I suppose. So how do you think about that yeah. issue? Uh,
0: Richard, one, I think it's a great point to bring up, but it goes back to a point that, Phil, you were making earlier, and this is where uh, getting an accurate perspective of history is so important. When you look back on even uh, after uh, you know slavery was over and, and Blacks were able to, in especially different pockets, go out and actually start making a living. You know, they got their own land, started opening up their own businesses, actually started thriving. I mean, under underneath military, you know, protection at that point, support, but they were actually thriving and starting to grow. Well, one of the, the sectors that really uh, be, began to feel the brunt of this new shift in opportunity and power was the the lower class white community, of which the Ku Klux Klan was bo- was birthed mm-hmm. and born, because even back then they started seeing and feeling and and interpreting their lack. Was coming from these 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 black people who were taking their jobs,
2: right? Like a zero sum game, like a zero sum game. Black empowerment and advancement was you right. know, at the cost of their own empowerment.
0: Exactly, X's and O's, or you know, binary. This whole binary relationship, and, and, that, and that and that's not true. And you you continue to see that throughout history, and not just with the African American community. We can we can talk about the Asian community and and the railroad. Um, Transatlantic Railroad that was built and how uh, there was a huge, you know, skift on uh, employing Asian uh, workers to build the railroad. And by the time the railroad met in the middle of America, uh, you look at the picture of the two sides joining and Mm -hmm. the big picture of all these men. They were all white faces. The Asian community who actually built that from the Pacific all the way to the Midwest no, no, no sign that they were even involved in this whole process um, because all the way through you had disenfranchised whites uh, attacking people who thought were taking their opportunity away. So you're definitely right. What's what's being felt now is is, again, another symptom of a dysfunctional structure that has to be examined and looked at rigorously. It's not an easy answer. Um, and on top of that, when you have uh, not getting too political <laughs> with this, uh, but but when you have voices um, recognizing the divide and then throwing fuel on on or you know uh, gasoline on the fuel to keep the division necessary, it doesn't it doesn't help the problem. Uh, but but I hope that that kind of speaks to to why it's so important for for us to again. Really take this, uh, you know, take the long, um, it, this is the long game that we have to be willing to to, to wrestle with. And and then look at, uh, you know, why are a lot of uh, white, commu- uh, traditionally white communities um, suffering, white lower-class class community suffering. Well, it's not because blacks or Latinos are taking their jobs. It's because the system that actually created economic opportunity, maybe in that environment or that, that local area, has shifted. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's not coal any longer. It's not uh, an industrialized support system or infrastructure that's generating the revenue for that community. Things have shifted. Automation, a lot of things have changed that has now taken dollars and cash flow out of that community. Um, and so we, we've got to look at that. We we have to look at this problem in a very compound, complex way. And then in the process of solving the problem together, be willing to look at our blind spots when our blind spots are exposed. Mm.
1: Yeah. Uh, we Let's go back a little further, 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was around 1680. This is one of the things that, try to get people to understand white supremacy is a very exclusive originally a very exclusive club it was white and wealthy so the lower class or the working class the poor whites actually had more in common with the with indentured black servants and slaves back in the 1600s Mm -hmm. than they did with the merchants and there was an uprising i think bacon's rebellion There was an uprising. This is when the term white became a legal term and privileges became attached to it. And this is how they divided the the African-Americans, the African slaves or Mm -hmm. African indentured servants and the whites, the white poor whites. If you're white, you could have property, you could vote, you could be a citizen, you had privileges. So this is where we start with the white privileges. And so that divided because now the poor whites saw themselves on the hierarchy here and blacks were here. We're not like them. Well, just a few weeks ago, we were this. Mm -hmm. And so white supremacy actually crushes its own. But there's such an allegiance even from poor whites to whiteness and its privilege, its superiority. It doesn't see that they actually have more in common with other marginalized groups mm-hmm. because white supremacy by nature is not just whiteness, but it's wealthy, right? And and that, and it's, it's a, again, a power struggle. It'll, it'll crush anything that's not in that group. Yeah, It'll turn on each other mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's built on greed and, 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 and avarice, what have you.
0: And when you can have a person who remains nameless, uh, position himself as the, um, blue collar billionaire and you can name it <laughs> trump you know <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. When, when you you have a person who's able to in his own narrative and his own uh campaign to pr- the presidency, hijack the the, the 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 narrative and convince those who were marginalized who had no nothing in common with this guy mm-hmm. you know to then vote and uh, you know allow him to be the voice. Of of their disenfranchisement, if I if I can say that, w- what's brilliant from a marketing standpoint? It was brilliant because uh, he was able to to do that and then point their angst and their their anger uh, toward um, uh, again other marginalized groups. I mean, w- w- we saw we see this even back in the days of, and I'm not comparing Hitler to Trump by any means, but we can see what al- what was it that allowed Hitler. To create such a strong narrative that um permeated uh outside of Germany to the rest of the European world and demonize um you know the the uh you know, Jewish community, well, it was a narrative of pointing the finger at all of these uh, Jewish you know Mertens and business owners and saying they are the reason why you're poor they are the reason why you don't have opportunity it's them. And and that message, that narrative, was allowed to get, again echo and echo and echo, and pretty much before you know it, and, and even the, um, the the minister of propaganda, uh, you know, of 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 the the Nazi movement says, if you tell a lie long enough, mm-hmm. the masses will believe it. Yeah,
2: certainly, he's a master of of creating reality out of his own you know delusional mm-hmm. narrative and energizing his base by putting a face on what that enemy is mm. without expressly saying it but through every action and everything that comes out of his mouth yeah. um it is you know gasoline on this fire and you know i think it's going to blow up in his face mm. and i think we're seeing that right now um my hope is that this is going to energize young voters to turn out i mean just what we're seeing in the streets right now i've never seen public activism on mm-hmm. this level. And so I'm hopeful that change will come in November, but if we've learned anything, <laughs> these you things, right. there's nothing off the table right now <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in terms of what what could happen. Um, but his ability to um, leverage that anger and sense of disenfranchisement for his own personal gain and do it under the rubric that he is in their interest mm-hmm. is one of the great snake oil hat tricks of all time. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, I was just with uh, um, actually having a conversation with a, a good friend of mine um, who happens to be a very right wing conservative Christian. He and I were on a on a conversation, a long conversation, and uh, I, I just share, it was it was a um, a, a, a thought experiment. You know, I decided. I asked him. I said, "Hey, let's 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 do a thought experiment really quickly." He and I were were uh, roommates at UCLA freshman year. Okay, and he came from uh, Iowa, and I'm from inner city East Cleveland. Okay, both coming together and having to room together, um, and learn a lot about each other through this whole you know first year at, at uh, in college. And I and I shared with him. I said, "Hey, look, let's put race aside and and let's just look at this from an aspect of privilege." I said, "You and I." Were athletes who um, were blessed to get scholarships to UCLA, correct? And he's like, yes. And I said, well, um, you know, be honest, uh, we, could you have gotten into UCLA on G- sheerly your SAT scores and your GPA? And he was like, no. Mm-hmm. Right, and I was like, "Well, guess what? Join the club." Me too. We we were both there, right? Here's a white guy saying the exact same thing, and I said, "Guess what? you and I were beneficiaries of the privilege that was extended to us uh, in the form of an athletic scholarship." You know, our our names were were put higher on the list of admissions because of some perceived value that we were bringing to the university. That's privilege. That's the privilege that you nor I deserved. Yeah, we can both make the argument that we worked hard in the pool, we got faster, and, and we, we demonstrated that, that we were good enough to compete at the college level. Sure, that doesn't take away our effort at all. But what we have to really recognize and be honest about is if there was not an infrastructure that valued swimming at the D1 level enough that they were willing to say, we would love to give you, you know, equivalent to your tuition and books Mm. if you decide to swim with us. If that construct, if that infrastructure didn't exist, we probably wouldn't have been able to get in. Mm.
2: But you might not have put so much energy into being a good swimmer had that opportunity not existed like in your horizon right, right? yeah you, you might have channeled your energy in a different direction mm-hmm.
0: and i kept saying i should have been a basketball player no. yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that's interesting though this idea of how of how christianity fits into all of this mm. and another juxtaposition with how christianity has been leveraged by the right um in a manner that contravenes the the core principles of what this religion is founded upon, and yourself as a pastor and and Byron as a former pastor, um, like let's talk about that. Like I listened, you did a you did a sermon like a recent podcast. I'm not okay that I listened to where you kind of break all this down, and you don't pull punches at all in that, which I appreciated. Um, so, where does faith play into this politically? and also spiritually
1: with respect to the movement that we're seeing at the moment? Well, two things. Um, one, I think we have to be honest. We, we, we've been deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are practicing the Christianity that that's in scripture. American Christianity looks very differently and it's intertwined with Americanism, it's individualism, capitalism, I just wrote a paper um, I think I'm going to turn it into a book one day. Neoliberal, the neoliberal gospel, and it's it's a business, all right? And we forget about we forget the fact that we're in the people business actually. So I think I think the way we 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 live out Christianity, we have to be honest that we're far from, and I'm I'm pretty critical about the church. We're far from as a as a group living out what we see in Scripture. It's very Americanized. Um, but as a pastor, what I'm seeing happening is I'm seeing trauma. I'm, we, uh, you said earlier, we witnessed a lynching, a public lynching. I had a, I had a guy come up to me once. I preached a sermon and in the last couple of years, almost everywhere I go, I weave in justice into it. I share my grandfather's story. Older white gentleman comes up to me afterwards and says, he's in tears, and he says, I have to confess, you know, my grandfather was, he has pictures in the house of a, of him standing in a crowd, proudly smiling, and his a lynched black body hanging behind him when he was younger, or maybe when he was adult, I don't, I don't know. He said, those pictures are all around the house. Were all around my grandfather's house growing up. They were just normal.
2: That's crazy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. He's in tears and he's apologizing, but he doesn't know what to do with that. And what I'm seeing in this man, I had to get past my offense to that. And I it wasn't hard. I was in pastor, pastor mode, but this man was genuinely in tears, broken. What does a child seeing that, what does that do? Like our souls aren't meant to see that and be normal or experience it or engage it and be normal. What we saw was a public lynching two weeks ago. That's not normal. To, to move past that and, and not address the pain, the woundedness, the trauma, that wouldn't be normal. So for me, I think that we can't, and, and I see too many people trying to fix the problem. They're trying to rush to fix the problem. Well, how many of us have ever been in a relationship with someone who's wounded, like deeply deeply wounded and end up being toxic? Doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, it could be a friendship. They're just toxic, right? Well, they're they're still dealing with some stuff that they've never addressed in their lives. They've never walked through the healing process, and I think it is critical right now that there be intent we be intentional as the church if we say we're about those core principles that we tend to the wounds of those who witnessed this 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 lynching and i see too many people in the church they say nothing about the murder their focus is on the either the looting and the violence there or their focus is on trying to um what's the word i want to look for trying to um debate against this idea of systemic racism mm-hmm. and they they weave that into politics they make they politicize it yeah they spend more energy there and he's a i i'm <laughs> i'm detoxing my social media as we speak i'm saying keep posting keep posting so i'll know who to unfriend cuz <laughs> i i, 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 I right. don't want that in my you know yeah, yeah. i'm detoxing man i'm like you're not even open okay I'm unfriend because I don't want that in my feed. Yeah. Right. Maybe I shouldn't unfriend. Maybe I should just unfollow
0: that they could still see my stuff. But I, <laughs> have, I don't want to deal with their stuff. Right. It, it, here's something too, to just to continue to add. Um, so what 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 does the church do? Um, like Phil, I'm I'm coming down pretty hard on the church because if you if you just look at the life and teachings of Jesus, um you can't be so um, so gripped on your ideological and political beliefs, whether you're from the right or the left, to the point where uh, you forget about what scripture teaches you about how to engage in love your fellow man, your fellow brother and sister. I mean, that's, I mean, the, the foundation, you know, and the, the, the message of Jesus and his teachings is love. And if if you can't start there at all, and I'm not just being like the kumbaya type of, uh, you know, let's we all get along. I love you. I don't see color. I'm not even talking about that. I, I hope you see color. Um, I want you to see color. I want you to see the differences because that's, I think, where the beauty is. What 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 I think is important is if you care more about your political posturing and positioning more than you do about, uh, being an example and a model, a vessel of of the love that Jesus actually died for, then your religion, you know, is is deaf, it's mute, it's dead, uh, because because that's not what he lived and ultimately died for. Hmm. You know, so that that's 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 the voice or that's my um, my charge and encouragement to the Christian community is, hey, we're supposed to have the playbook to lead through this time right now, right? We're, we're supposed to be the ones that people can actually look to, to see how do you bring two people who have different ideas, totally different walks of life and come together in a way, in a supernatural, miraculous way. I mean, the church should be leading the charge.
2: Mm, yeah, what are the moral and ethical guideposts right. that are gonna dictate how we navigate this Landfield, right? And I, I mm-hmm. love the example, the analogy of the wounded friend. It's like if you think of a friend who's deeply wounded or has suffered tremendous trauma, and use that as a stand-in for the African American community. How do you interact with that person? Do you come to them and say, "Well, I'm going to fix you with these three things," I and mean, we can talk <laughs> about. You know how we need to overhaul policing and police brutality, and there's you know several steps that we can take towards redressing that, but that's not going to heal that wound overnight. You come to a wounded friend with compassion and with understanding and with patience, not with a motivation to change or to fix, but to
1: understand. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: To to your point, I think about the story of the Samaritan man. Man's left on the side of the road to be beaten. Dr. King preaches on this. Uh, brilliant. Um, the African American community, for the sake of this conversation, is the man left to die, to die on the on the road. The Samaritan man. Well, the church is the, the the priest and the Levite who walk to the other side, leave him leave him laying there. Doesn't want to touch him. Just walks to the other side. The Samaritan man is supposedly like this person who's not connected to God, like the priest and the Levi, but this person comes and gets to, gets to his knees and tends to the wounds. He's taking a risk because there could be some other robbers hiding out, waiting for the next person to walk on that road. Mm-hmm. He's taking a risk by tending to this man's wounds. He takes this man and puts this man on his animal while he walks to the end. So he's now sharing resources and he's giving up access to those resources to a degree. He gets to the end. He says, here's, here's for his stay till he gets better. And in whatever, if he stays longer, charge it to me, I'll, I'll take care of it. Because he has the resources. Mm-hmm. Now here's where we go, here's where, that, that should be the church's response for the tending to the wounds part. But then here's the church's other response. And Dr. King brings this out. We also should speak to the conditions that allow the road to be conducive for robbers to hide
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and beat people up in the first place because if we don't address that tomorrow somebody's going to be back on that road and robbers are going to be hiding out cuz the road is conducive for that the curves and everything right if it was modern day it would be something like we got to put lighting up mm-hmm. on the road so it's not as, as dark
0: mm-hmm. we got to
1: have patrolmen coming so it scares the robbers. We have to do something to make the road safer for those who are traveling that road. Right. Otherwise, we're gonna be back in this situation again. Yeah.
2: An example of that that comes to mind is is what DeRay McKesson is doing with Eight Can't Wait. Mm-hmm. Are you yep. familiar with exactly. this? Exactly. Like how, you know, yeah. he's got these steps and things that... Um, are you know immediately actionable in terms of like changing how policing is done right. and he seems to be at the forefront of addressing that
0: ever since Ferguson. Yeah, which I think is a beautiful step and okay, here are some some handles that you can actually implement and we can hold you accountable in measures that are available to okay, police departments, what do we do? Well, here's the, here are the eight that you can actually look at, look at how you train your officers. Look at the current uh, rules and and things that are currently in place that contribute to this type of abuse and power. Um, let's attack those things. Let's address those things. You know, We don't want to put policemen in harm's way e- any more than they, they are mm-hmm. currently. That's not the intent of, of reconstructing this whole thing. It's to look at which of these things are not working. I mean, if we were looking at a business, right? And a business decided to, uh, to launch, a startup decides to launch. They create a software and all. What do, what do they recognize inherently in the process? They have a, a minimum viable product that they know is not going to fly completely and perfectly when they release it to market, right? They, 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 they release it knowing full well that when the system begins to mm-hmm. be in contact with reality, bugs are going to show up. But they also, in addition to that, have a plan of rapid implementation, rapid ideation to improve the system. That's the type of mindset we need to have when we're talking about our judicial system, when we're talking about our policing system, is recognize that, hey, what you have in place, okay, it's a good start. You may have been well-intended in these rules and regulations and structures, but we see that the real world is showing where this stuff is dysfunctional. Let's change that. Mm-hmm. Let's let's implement rapid, uh, you know, um, tooling to improve what's there. And I think uh, eight can't wait is a great suggestion and a great step in doing that. Because police departments who've already put that into effect, we're seeing positive benefits. We're seeing decrease in yeah. senseless police killings.
2: Yeah, and I think what's great about it is that it's not about rhetoric, it's data-driven. Yeah. So it's not just, we yeah. need to defund the police. Like, what right. does that even mean? I right. mean, I, I understand that's an emotional reaction to seeing a militarized police state that does nothing but instill fear <sighs> and exacerbate whatever violence you know is happening on the street. Right. But to actually look at the statistics and say, what are the levers that we can pull that will actually make a difference? And mm-hmm. some of them are counterintuitive. Like I heard him talking about it, on a podcast the other day, where you would think, like, well, um, you know, if you just hire more black police officers, that'll solve it. But they realized that that isn't effective until they reach something like 34% of the police department being mm-hmm. black or, you know, instituting psychological, you know, psych training or whatever. Like they found out that that's really not that. Eff- like things that you think might work mm-hmm. actually don't. But looking at the data can. Um, Show you like oh, but these simple things that every police department can do actually could make a huge difference in right. in uh reducing fatality rates and and all of the abuse instances
1: yeah, is there any part of eight can't Wait that suggests the, the those who are in power those who are um have the power to i don't, I don't know who who would it be but captains and and commissioners um because if they've already bought into the previous ideology mm-hmm. that actually has been passed on since the 1800s when policing was designed to patrol the slaves and protect the property of the wealthy um if they that that's been passed on mm-hmm. so if they've bought into that and that's who they are we're asking them to to buy into something that is foreign to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. So right if, it's checks where, it's
2: checks and balances on individuals and systems in which there is a systemic problem, yeah. right? It's it, These are good solutions, but you're speaking to the broader problem of dealing with the systemic aspect of it. And that goes to the psychology of the people that are administering these mm-hmm. departments mm-hmm. as well.
0: Right. I was talking to um, another uh, person, a police officer, uh, and we were just talking about, uh, this was actually a while back, and uh, we were just talking about the the, the emotional health of police officers going into and and having their their life be every time they step out of the door it's depending on their beat uh, you know it isn't known whether or not they're going to come home mm-hmm. all right so that's the reality that they they live in and he and I um in our conversation he was sharing well here are some things that I think we need to improve and I thought it was really interesting he said number 1 uh, some of the systemic issues for police officers, is number one, good cops have to actually mm-hmm. be supported and and protected enough to call out bad cops. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a, a fraternity and a subculture within the uh, precincts themselves where a a, a good cop mm-hmm. doesn't feel safe in actually calling out and holding accountable a bad cop, that's dysfunction in the system that needs to change. Yeah. On top of that, you have to have a support system where again we're not even going to get into <laughs> um you know the domestic violence of police officers uh the the drug and alcohol abuse that that's um that's systemic and you see the divorce rate that you see from police officers all of these things are again flare up conditions that are coming as a result of a dysfunctional system so so we, you know i'm all for and and we support you know Police officers, so this rhetoric of uh, you know you got to be for the blue if you're if you're protesting then you're you're not supporting our mm-hmm. police officers. we got to get past that yeah. you know it's no let's look at the system in which these guys and gals have to work, and let's be honest about how can we go about helping them win, and this then also in addition to what i've just listed, also includes um you know their sense and their fear of African American males. I mean, there is a huge uh, subconscious. I mean, I, I've experienced it my whole life, and 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 actually, Phil and I were talking about this. And I, and and if you look at, I, I've shared this before, and that is there is a secret language that all uh, African American men and women who work in you know the white collar sector have learned to speak. And I'm not just talking about being able to speak, um, you know, be proper and articulate. I'm talking about there is a way that when we walk into a boardroom, when we walk into an environment, when we walk down the street and a white woman is approaching us, we've learned how to signal to them mm-hmm. that hey, we're friendly, you're safe. we're safe, yeah, you know, you're
2: non, you're, you're non-threatening, we're
0: non threat.
2: you're not an angry black man,
0: <laughs> exactly. You know <right. laughs> yeah. that that is real uh-huh and and so uh, those things have to be addressed, and mm-hmm. again, uh, the onus has to a lot of the onus has to fall on uh, white America and not being so fragile in those in that context, right and and be willing to step up and be willing to, hey, if I'm passionate, at least arguing my point across a boardroom table, don't dismiss it as an angry black man. No, uh, let's rigorously argue and deal with the points that I'm bringing up. Because if my counterpart, who happens to be white, is just as adamant, just as, as committed in expressing their point of view on this on a that particular issue, they're going to get a pass on that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're this just they're gonna they're gonna probably walk away from the meeting. Wow, he was he was really really you know excited about you know his 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 idea. Passionate. He's passionate. Yeah. Right. Not angry. Yeah, that double standard. Right. It's exhausting. It's
1: gotta be exhausting, I just, right? I was just I, I, <laughs> just, I was just saying yeah, yeah. some days I just don't care. When I'm going running and I have to think about when I see that white woman, she mm. doesn't realize she has more power in the situation. Mm, right. But I'm more, I'm more nervous than she is. Because <laughs> yeah. if she says anything, she's gonna get the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes you're just tired. You just, you know, being in a, when you work at a mega church, I'm not there now, but when you work at a mega church, it's like working in a a big company Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing. And it's, it's, you have to think about it. You have to consider it. um, And it's mentally draining. And some days you just don't care. Some days I want to be really, really passionate and I just don't care what you think, uh, you know, but then you, you can't be like that all the time, so you got to monitor yeah. that. Um, and it's, it's those little microaggressions that if, if we look at, you said 10,000 feet, let's look at where we are going back to earlier. If you look at everything, the fatigue, the anger, it's, it, it's about all of this of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's about the microaggressions. It's about being in the workplace and my voice is muted by everyone else's voice is heard. It's about being in the in the grocery store or in a store and being surveilled, having the surveillance. Um, we call, call it the white gaze. It's about- Like walking. a hypervigilance yeah. everywhere you go. It's like yeah. walking into Starbucks and the, the, the guy over there just sitting, he's just staring at you and you're like, okay. mm mm-hmm you know, Mm -hmm. and you feel the eyes on you or the guy that almost hit me purposely coming out of Whole Foods a few months back. um, Purposely, like he came within inches, did not slow down, didn't stop. Well, he slowed down, but he didn't stop. Mm -hmm. And he tried to make it seem like he knew I'd already cleared, but I'm inches away from your car.
2: Right, and just those daily occurrences, just getting put into the file cabinet, you know, week after week after week. I think that- What's so special and unique about right now is we're seeing every flavor and color of that kind of experience Mm -hmm. writ large on social media because the most impactful, and you're a filmmaker, but the most impactful and um, powerful filmmaking that we're seeing right now is what's coming out of everybody's cell phone. Right. the birder in Central Park with that Mm -hmm. woman and the encounter that they had from the cops that knocked over that elderly white man in Buffalo. And then all the police officers that, you know, resigned Mm -hmm. in their omerta to those guys being fired. Like, and everything in between from the police, the good police officers who, you know, took a knee or marched with the protesters, Mm -hmm. the bad behavior, the good behavior. And we're having conversations about it. Yeah. That can't be a bad thing. This boil is being lanced. It's out in the open right now. And we have this extraordinary opportunity to leverage the energy around this to mm-hmm. actually do some
1: good with lasting change. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you brought that up with the, the cops taking the knee. It goes back to coming to the table and the relinquishing of power, where those who are protesting, you know, it could be a young girl, it could be a small petite woman that's fiery. She's holding on to whatever power she has, but that cop has to be willing to relinquish power, and he may get backlash that you're showing a sign of weakness. But you you notice whenever they they do that, it's it's usually peaceful. It's usually yeah. some reckons. It's usually something that shifts the mm. the, the tenor of the protest, right? But that was him or whoever they are coming to the table at that moment and the willingness to relinquish some power and humble themselves and say, you know what? I get it. I'm still going to be a cop. I get it, but I'm going to kneel with you. And Mm -hmm. it's meeting them where they are. And they see now they're no longer threatened by your power. And that's, that was, I think that's a perfect example of what I was talking about coming to the table. If if that can happen behind the scenes, um, when you come up with legislation or, police reform or institutional reform in companies, corporations, if that can happen, then you'll see some significant change, mm-hmm. right? And lasting um, change. Lasting change, but that, those power dynamics um, are at play. Yeah. yeah.
0: And you also mentioned the example of uh, the uh, elderly gentleman being pushed over by the police officers. Uh you know, if you look at that tape, I think also I think that's a great snapshot of the systemic dysfunction as well. Because there's the one guy who one wanted guy, to help them, right? He was on duty and he had his orders were to march forward. He, in his humanity, recognized that what just happened, and in his humanity, wanted to stop to help him, but his whoever was the commanding officer at that time or whoever, literally, physically said, "No, you continue to march mm-hmm. forward." Mm-hmm. That I think again, it tells us a, a strong story of just how insidious, how complicated um yet how urgent the problem we're facing is and and we have to be willing to uh stop looking at the status quo or looking at um, you know our job as as normal as as usual and start again challenging what is not working and taking the time to figure out how can we do it better. My, my, my hope and, uh, and, and my encouragement is I, I believe we can. You know, I believe that we are intelligent enough um, and we are compassionate enough to actually make inroads and, and solve this thing. I, I, I truly do. But it's going to take uh, courageous voices and a staying power Uh, that that will allow us to eventually get escape velocity, one, get off the ground, and then two, escape velocity Mm -hmm. and fight through all of that natural resistance that we've been talking about this whole time to the point where we get to an inflection point that then allows this thing to really take on a life of its own. We're nowhere near that yet. And so this gravitational pull is the area that we're in. And we have to just understand that and recognize we're in for a fight. So let's buckle up, let's lock arms, and let's stay committed.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to require an appreciation of the incredible complexity of all of it too. When you were speaking there, I was thinking about the the situation in Flint where the, the was it the chief and mm-hmm. the cops were marching with the protesters yeah. and a distinguishing factor there, at least according to my understanding, is that the police officers live in the community there. Whereas due to socioeconomic disparity, a lot of police officers can't afford to live in the communities mm-hmm. in which they police, right. which creates a lack of connectivity to the people that they're supposed to be protecting and serving yeah. right so that's just another like layer uh, or issue that needs to be unpacked and addressed that mm-hmm. goes be, it, you know that's almost beyond like how do we solve economic disparity <laughs> so right, that right. you know police officers can live in the same area where they're patrolling yeah. like these 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 problems are huge right, yeah. right? they're
0: huge mm-hmm. huge and um, I, I like what, uh, I mean, Phil has a, a program. I call them the four L's. And I speak to that a little bit more. Um, and I, you, you talk about, okay, what do we do now? You know, uh, I, you know the eight can't wait, I think is a, is a great start. Right, but, can't, which uh, is, I think, is a subset of Campaign Zero. Campaign right? Zero, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, great website, and there's some other, um, I can't think of it right now, but resources. But those are two great resources that I think people can go to and look at okay what can i do now where i'm at cuz a lot of people feel defenseless a lot of people feel hopeless and don't feel like their voice counts or what they do would actually matter and that's not the case and so hopefully in the show notes we'll be able to you know give the links to organizations that are bipartisan and that are just their their boots on the ground really trying to figure this thing out i think would be important but but Phil can you speak to um just the 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 the, the 4 Ls that kind of helps people walk through this process?
1: Yeah, we, we've we heard um, a couple of those L's, the listen and the learn. Mm-hmm. You hear that all the time. Just a little background. We were watching a, a film in class four years ago, um, MLK class, and they showed Emmett Till. And that's when I first realized, wait a minute, Emmett Till reminds me of my grandfather. My grandfather's body would have probably looked like that. And we broke up into small groups and I shared with my, class, my two classmates, I can't see Emmett Till without seeing my grandfather. And it kind of shocked them. So they, they were intently listening to me. They were in a context where they were learning from a Korean MLK scholar, Hak Jun Lee, about an African-American pastor, scholar, theologian, MLK. So they were listening and learning that was happening at the same time. They were learning from my story, but they were learning theology and ethics, um, Christian theology and et- ethics about Dr. King from a Korean man, from people of color. But what, what shocked me, what never happened before, I'd never seen this, was when they began to cry. I'd never seen a white person moved or feel for mine or my people's pain as it relates to racism they were in tears to the point where one kid said, as you see your grandfather in Emmett Till, I see my grandfather in the men who killed him. And that's a huge, that's huge, right? Mm. Then I shared with the whole class, the whole class, not the whole class, but many people in the class began to just be in tears. Mm. And so I just wanted to document what I had experienced in that class that day. And I said, they were listening, they were learning, they lamented, and for me, in this journey to what do we do, that's the soul work that needs to happen. That makes up the soul work, but the inner work. Because we can jump into fixing stuff and compound the issue because we don't understand the issue. We don't understand the depth of the pain. We don't feel it. We're just in here trying to fix uh, a problem that we think we can take care of real quick. Mm -hmm. Then it's the labor. And the reason why the lament part is so important, I don't know anybody who sustains something that's that causes change without passion, without a burden, without something in the gut that drives them. Right? Um, so now the labor, but the labor is depending on context, the person's influence, their relationships, um, who they have, you know, it, it depends on where they are in, in, in their life. So like Somebody could have a platform, a huge platform. So their labor could be, as you said earlier, making sure there's diverse voices or black voices have a platform, sharing a platform, whatever. A teacher, like at my school, some of them are now forced to relearn some of their theological positions, uh, perspectives. They're they're, they're being challenged by people of color, the Mm -hmm. perspectives of color. So now they're having to diversify their reading lists and their curriculums. Um, schools that now having to bring in, um, change up the dynamics of their administration, their board of trustees. These are some things that need to happen, but those things won't be sustained without the inner work, the listening, learning, the lamenting. And so the the labor part, it depends on context where you are. For somebody, it could mean joining an organization in your local community that is doing the work of social justice. For somebody else, it could be funding, Um, As well as um, how you um, handle your social media platform, um, being responsible there. I mean, it could mean a number of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I tell people in the church, it starts, your labor should start with prayer. If I'm praying for this daily, you need to be praying for this daily too. And
0: And, uh, again, on the labor part as well, uh, another high profile example is um, the co founder of Reddit you know, deciding to... Right, I saw that. Yeah. Alexis
2: Ohanian just, yeah, yeah, Ohanian
0: says, you know what? Okay, I, I recognize my privilege. I recognize the position that I'm in. Um, I'm going to, you know, again, he was more of a head of a chair role and things of that nature, but he's like, I am going to use this as an opportunity to remove myself and then strongly rec- recommend that an African-American person be put in this place, not in some affirmative action type way, you know, but, but recognizing that, hey, look, this is something that I'm going to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem through my complicitness or my, um, because I don't know what I can do, decide to remain frozen and do nothing. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm going to try this. I'm I'm going to do this. And this is an example, but I'm also going to call out anyone else who is in in a position where they can purposely and willfully render or give over to them the power that's necessary to right the ship. Faster, mm-hmm. you know, those moves have to continue to to take place as well. And again, this isn't about uh, you know giving black people something that they don't deserve or unqualified for. Because you hear that argument too. You hear mm-hmm. that argument against affirmative action. You hear that argument again. A lot of these different problems. Well, you know, these people aren't you're not really qualified to do this, so that's unfair. That they would take a spot from someone who's more deserving. Not even getting into all of that. Well, what what I'm, what I, the point that I really want to highlight is no, there are enough qualified African Americans. And if you want to even broaden it out, other minority groups who are just as capable of excelling in that role. But if your networks aren't healthy enough so that when you go through the hiring process, most of those jobs uh, in influential positions are done through network, Mm -hmm. it's the buddy system. All right, and then they kick the tires through HR, right? But the people have been hired. I mean, I, I've had that experience. We know that that's how it works. Until your network becomes diversified. And um, I, I would challenge, I used to challenge executives and, and, and pastors this. I said, if you're in a hiring position and there's a role that needs to be hired for, but it's an important role, um, what do you normally do? And they, they normally pick up the phone and they start calling their buddies, yeah, who's right? good. Who's good? Who do you got? Who do you know? And then I say, well, you know, the first five people you call, think about it. Think about the first five people in your, your Rolodex or, or your, your contacts list. Now I get them to think about it. And then I say, all right, now what color are they? If all five of those people who you would pick up the phone and call, their first five calls, all of them look like you. Recognize that in that moment, you're still now perpetuating the problem because you're only exhausting and exploring a network that's going to continue to produce the same thing. Instead, why not uh, in this time, actively begin to diversify your network? It could even start there.
1: Mm. Yeah, this, this guy from Reddit, I don't know if he should have done that. I don't know because if he removes himself, he's already an advocate. He removes himself and brings in this black guy, is this black guy gonna be at the table by himself with no other voice advocating with him? Mm-hmm. So rather than removing himself from the table, I think they should add more seats to the table. I think that because I don't wanna come into a context where the guy that was just advocating for me, he leaves and I find myself there.
0: Now you're the target. <laughs> and no one, no one
1: else really f- feels the way he feels. Now I'm fighting a battle, but he's gone. Mm-hmm. Well, the
2: argument that gets thrown around is that this is a performance of white guilt for the purpose of
0: virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that's where the, the pendulum can't swing the other way. White guilt of, of doing that, it's like, a, uh, but here's where I extend a lot of grace. Uh, it, it's almost like you look at a kid who's just learning how to ride a bike. If they have a commitment and intent mm-hmm. to learn to ride this bike, right? The initial push-off is going to look rocky, it's going to look shaky, and it's not going to look pretty. And They're going to make a lot of mistakes. They're going to fall. I see a lot of movements and gestures just like I see that. Out of the gate, it's not going to be necessarily right and pretty, and it could err on the side of white guilt. But let's not demonize it. Let's not throw it away. But instead, let's just, again, continue to solve for the problem. Mm -hmm. It's outcome uh, thinking versus process thinking. If we just think about the process, we'll get overwhelmed and we'll get discouraged and we'll shut down. But if we think, okay, everything that we do, everything that we test, everything that we we apply, it always has to be laid against the outcome, the, the desired result we want and make informed decisions based upon how well we're moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. I think that is the, that's the momentum. That's the posture. That's the flow I think we need to to be able to be in and sustain.
1: But but I also think that if you, if we don't rush, if we don't move too quickly, we can avoid many of those mistakes. So So when we talk about listen, learn, lament, part of that is to give the space of processing. So we're not out of the gate trying to, you know, you know, swing the pendulum to the other side and just right the ship right away. That's the whole point of that process. Um, and I shared that yesterday on my social media, um, slow down. Like we just experience trauma. All of us experience trauma. Mm. So there are going to be those decisions that are made um, to right the ship and, they're gonna, and, and some of them are going to compound the issue. But if we, if we process this thing together, slow down, and I would say, listen to the voices of color. We'll make less mistakes. We won't come out of the gate um, exacerbating the problem.
2: But isn't the fear that we can't allow this energy and this momentum to dissipate?
1: Yeah, that is yeah. the fear. But I don't think, I don't think it will. It's, I'm not saying we don't do anything. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, let's not try to like, fix everything right away. Of course. In that processing, we'll make wiser decisions. Now, this is where, as a pastor, I, I share, you know, this is where I'm allowing God to lead me. This is where I'm allowing, not just lead me, but us in, in community as we wrestle with things. Like even right now, as we're talking, we're, we're processing, we have different, maybe some different views and, and, and suggestions and stuff like that. But in this context, there can come, there can be something can be, we can give birth to something, mm-hmm. right? So the process doesn't have to be long, I mean, it could be weeks. It could be a matter of weeks, but it just like take, your, take our time and, and let's, let's, let's do this together rather than trying to fix it because we're not going to fix it right. right away. This is I don't believe that this gets fixed in my generation. Mm-hmm. I'm a cynic. I believe we can make it better for the next generation. And when I say generation, maybe in my lifetime, the next generation, those Gen Zs, they have a better starting point. Everything I do is not for me or for us necessarily. It's for my niece. It's for my godson. So when they're older, they don't have to have the same conversation. They may have some conversations, but not the same conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm thinking it's critical that we don't we don't try to fix it today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think we'll lose the urgency. I think... Because uh, again, I'm not saying wait until like next year or anything like that. I'm just saying let's just make sure we're we're taking the right steps. I believe the healing part is is critical, man. I think making certain decisions from a from a, a hurt, angry, or 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 traumatized space can actually make the problem worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think really tending to that, because the civil rights movement, the work that they put in. Even before it started, the work that they put in behind the scenes, the women, before King even came on board, the ship was already rolling. Mm -hmm. And then he comes on board and he's this dynamic personality. But even every step of the way, every week, every month, they were strategizing. They were meeting, praying, strategizing. And so if they can do that and, and give us a model... Mm-hmm. Then I think we can do the same thing mm. you know what i'm saying
0: yeah and and I, I agree with you on that I think what I would like to add at least highlight is um i I think it it's and both I think the waiting the allows the healing because I think that's i mean that's that's the point we we i think all agree to yeah, that yeah. that's important the lamenting part of the 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 four l's you've got listen, you've got learn, you've got lament, you know which is mourning uh, many times you you have people from different sides. They'll have to mourn the the power um, and the 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 supreme, the white supremacy that they didn't know they were perpetuating. Mm-hmm. Okay, they how the world was the way they thought the mm-hmm. is different. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. definitely, I think that is that is a necessary part and process. But more, I mean, pragmatically, I, I see it as and both. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's we, what I'm, yeah, Right. Yeah. yeah. We, we don't want to rush things so that we make a lot of, you know, unforced errors, mm-hmm. so to speak. But at the same time, I think we, we continue to move in ways. And, and if things happen and they make mistakes, let's not demonize. That's the point that I wanted to really highlight is, okay, if something happens and someone, I mean, we, we see this in administrations all the time. Uh, you know, you go into the Affordable Care Act, right? And this thing rolls out and it was far from perfect, far from perfect. Uh, But instead of, again, seeing it as a rollout and then identifying what works, what doesn't, and then changing, um, political parties demonize Demonize. Mm -hmm. and want to throw the baby out with the Mm bathwater. And we see that happening over and over again, from the left to the right, right to the left. We see it in social groups, uh, different dynamics. I just keep wanting to advocate That can't be our approach Mm -hmm. because like you said, Rich, the problem is too too complex for us to have lazy logic in this and be stuck in our silos so much that we spend more energy defending our point than solving the problem. Mm
2: -hmm. Another, switching gears a little bit, another narrative that's out there is that this problem is not for... Black people to solve. It's mm-hmm. for white people to solve. So, what is the role of white America in redressing this? Other than you know that you talked about the L's and we need to educate people. We need to appreciate the complexity of this. We need time to heal. We need you know uh, uh, a longer conversation that isn't bifurcated around political mm-hmm. lines. Like how do we? How does? How do the the white people listening to this wrap their heads around how they can be? a most productive member of this, you know, movement.
1: I I, I think, you know, I, I, I go back and forth because I, I believe that it's voices of color that um, need to lead mm-hmm. um, because we feel it. Uh, you know, this idea, you can't lead me someplace you've never been or you can't give to me what you've never had. 100%. Mm-hmm. It would just—it's preposterous to right. think yeah. otherwise. Right. You know? so so there, there's a learning from voices of color, but I think taking the power and the privilege, and 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 being a part of helping to reach the white, the the broader white community, I think right now that's that's with whether it's in government, those congressmen and women, um, using their positions to reach them. Family members on the family level, reaching them in the corporate in corporations reaching them, I think, because we can't reach them. Our job, we can share, we can put pressure on, we can protest, we can, we can do all these things. We can write books, but they're not going to listen to us necessarily. So I think one way, this is just one, it's not the only way. This is just one, one thing is I ask, you know, white friends, you have to be the voice to reach the people that we're not going to be able to reach on all these levels, wherever your influence is. That's that's one way because I don't know what else we can do. I, I really don't. Mm-hmm. If you look at literature, you look at music, you look at movies, you look at um, marches, we've done it peacefully, we've done it angrily, we've kneeled, we've knelt, we've fist in the air, we've used our bodies in ways that that's our we didn't that's one of the primary resources we have our bodies we've done everything we know to do and we're still here not just incidents but a culture right i think it takes the white allies or whatever word you want to use for that to be the voices advocating in solidarity to the white community because they're not going to listen to us necessarily. Mm. Not all, some will, but the masses won't listen to us.
0: Mm. Yeah, to add to that, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, we talk about Dr. Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights Movement, and we forget about another voice that uh, was even more demonized, but I think was was as equally an integral part in advancing was Malcolm X, mm. right? And uh, even to this day, uh, you know, he... That name is still demonized, and and a lot of people when they hear that name, they're immediately, you know, fearful because of what he stood for. But what people, what is what is less known about him, especially in the tail end of his of his movement, uh, and, and his 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 platform, was he, you know, saw and started to 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 bring different nationalities and cultures together. And and he, he shared something that that I think is is important, and it speaks to your your question about what do white people do in this in this moment. And and one thing he he recognized is uh, right now, of course, everybody's binging Netflix. Uh, there's a, a Netflix, or no, I think it's on, on on HBO, but the Defiant Ones. It's a it's a, a four part uh, episode or series on the relationship between Dr. Dre and uh, Jimmy Iovine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, two moguls in the the hip-hop or the the music industry, and how they come together and how, you know, they're taking over the world with Bees and Apple and all that stuff, right? Well, interesting, and the point that Malcolm X really tried to highlight that I see illustrated in their relationship is at some point, the Jimmy Iovine saw and recognized the talent and the the ability um, of Dr. Dre. And it wasn't, a posture of, let me reach back and down and pull this guy up. It was never that. What it was, was, wait a minute, I see and identify in, 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 uh, in Dr. Dre the same love and passion and raw talent and ability, even better than my own. And, uh, and I'm going to actually use my, my in um, to nurture and cultivate this guy. That, that whole relationship is powerful. We need more of that mm. because here you had Jimmy Iovine who was already on the end, um, who himself you know, came from modest backgrounds, but then at the height of his power, recognizing someone else and saying, let me mentor, let me – and it wasn't, again, this back and down. It wasn't charity. He saw how he could make money. With Dr. Dre, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. he saw that this guy was valuable, uh-huh. um, but but this guy also needs a seat at the table and but needs not to in be coached. An
2: exploitive way exactly. What you're right,
0: yeah. not in a, it was in a partnership way, mm-hmm. and uh, in a way that's loving too, because not to not to like uh, uh, spoiler, you know, to spoil whoever wants to watch it. But you saw in the narrative of uh, Dr. Dre's life many missteps that um, that. You, you know, it's like, wow, he could have blown it up here. He mm-hmm. could have blown it up here and here. He still had a guy who was like, look, I'm all in with you because I, 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 I see the value.
2: So extrapolating on that, the message that you're trying to convey, like, mm-hmm. like distill that down to the point okay. that relates to Malcolm X.
0: So, so the, the point – that um, thank you for actually helping me bring the The, the point is Malcolm X recognized the, the importance of people, white people in power. Aligning themselves with Black people mm. uh, and sharing the power, right, and and not doing it in a way that it's charity, not doing it in a way that it's what what we're deeming as white guilt, but actually taking the time to recognize, seeing the humanity um, of a, of another person, and recognizing in the backdrop of inequality, I'm going to ride with this person, right? Come hell or high yeah, water. Yeah,
2: I got it. One of the um differentiating factors between what's happening now and the civil rights movement of the late 1960s is that um, there is no Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. We don't have Mm -hmm. a singular voice to galvanize the movement around there, But, but at the same time, there's a lot of interesting voices out there right now. They're just more dispersed. Mm-hmm. It's not as centralized as before. And I've I found myself wondering like, would it be better if there was one person that we're kind of pivoting around? I mean, that doesn't seem to be the re- reality right now, but maybe one of the things we can kind of um, wind this conversation down with is who are those interesting voices out there? If people want to broaden their, you know, information silo to expose themselves to interesting people of of color,
1: mm-hmm. I I think of Tanihisi Coates.
2: Yeah, I just listened to him on the, on Ezra Klein's podcast the other day. It was amazing.
1: Yeah, I think I think he he. Uh he's a voice that, that has to be seriously considered and listened to. But I think, I don't know if we'll ever really go back to that model. Mm. Um, you know, in our community, we, we we say every time we have a leader, they kill him <laughs> <laughs> on some <laughs> yeah. level. Yeah. I don't know why I'm yeah, no, it, like, it, that's not funny. It's, it's, probably, it's probably, laughing it's like, to so wait, release the pain. Yeah. That's it. Right. Right. It's sad, but, but true. But either physically kill them or, their their character, their reputation, they'll find a way. And then that, that kills the whole movement because we've put everything around this mm-hmm. one central voice. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And so when you have multiple voices, and I think it's important, um, if you have multiple voices, you have someone who has an, ex, an expertise in this area, they can bring that to the table. You have someone over here who has an expertise in this area and they can bring that to the table. Um, I'm trying to think of um, my whole library is just going through my head and everything's- uh, If you
2: can't think of anybody now, if you got, maybe you guys email me and I'll put it in the show notes. Willie
1: Jennings Mm. is phenomenal. He's a theologian. He's phenomenal. Um, He has a book called The Christian Imagination. He has a controversial lecture. It's controversial if you just look at the title. It's called, Can White People Be Saved? And he's not talking about white people in terms, necessarily- ethnicity but he's talking about ideology where we talk about white supremacy and people who um subscribe to that either even subconsciously but it's a he breaks down whiteness um and its impact on on the whole world uh, from colonialism um to now and he does it theologically um j cameron carter is another theologian that's brilliant he was at duke you know he's at indiana Mm -hmm. university i believe. So th- there are a number of voices and many of them don't get as much um airplay as they should. Um but these 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 guys are, are brilliant. Um I think of uh, uh who did I I think I shared a name, a female, a woman. Uh, well Angela Rye. I I love Angela Rye. She she's
0: she's brilliant as well.
1: Yeah, very outspoken I'll, I'll send you Yeah, okay. Yeah.
2: Firing mm-hmm. as anyone come well, to
0: mind. Well, you know, actually, I, I, I actually agree with uh, with Phil when you're saying that. I think the model has to be slightly different. There needs to be a hybrid model moving forward. I don't think there there, there will be one person to galvanize and be that one voice. But um, and this is my, my crazy creative side coming out. I, I, when I look at movements and organ and organisms and how uh, you see systems operate uh, autonomously. Um, but continue to thrive and exist. For example, you you look at let's say um, again, it, it, and this is crazy. See if, if pull me back in if I go too far. But uh, you you look at paleo, you look at uh, you know the raw, uh, you look at movements um, like you know plant strong, plant based. There isn't just one person who everyone is following mm. and keeping those movements alive. No, it's 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 a it's a, it's a concept, is an ideal not an ideology, but it is a, a framework by which people in by themselves can take ownership of and then create a lifestyle around it. And they in 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 doing that, they can augment that with resources from other voices. So their any their their education or their thirst for knowledge and mastery is what drives the movement with them and then you have that happening collectively among thousands and millions of people and that's what allows a movement to exist i truly believe that is what's going to have to take place in this is that at some point at the fundamental personal level everyone's going to have to say this is going to become a lifestyle for me and then as i come up against blocks or roadblocks or confusion that's when i'm going to reach out and i'm going to listen to voices that i think are credible and then i'm going to take like my old pastor used to say you know he says taking advice is like eating chicken he says you you eat the meat throw the bones away right. you know and that's you know kind of funny but but that's that's i think the mentality that we have to have we have to say i'm going to take personal ownership of it And I'm going to live it out regardless of what other people think and say or do. And I'm going to purposely orient my life where I'm going to keep educating myself in this lifestyle, in this way of life so that I'm better at it. And then ultimately I'm blessing and impacting in a positive way the lives around me. Mm. Beautifully put, man. Mm. Beautifully put.
2: Well, I think we should uh put a pin in it. I think we we covered a lot of ground here. I do want to point out that a good place for people to start, especially if you want to learn more about Phil, is to read your your recent blog post. This is America. I thought that was super powerful Thank you and you basically you you once again not mincing words like you just break down this whole situation in in a way that um i think is is powerful but also um, digestible for anybody to read. Uh, so, any final thoughts before we end it today?
0: Mm. Well, I want to, I, I love you, Rich. You're, you're a brother from another mother. We, you know, I just, just your heart um, and for allowing us on the podcast and just, again, having this kind of conversation and just seeing you and your heart and the the steadfastness of the mission you're on with the platform you've been given and that you're blessed to cultivate um thank you thank you because i think that this these are the sorts of things that need to happen i appreciate consistently
2: that. yeah thanks man i'm just you know i'm i'm doing this as imperfectly as anybody and trying to learn as i go like i'm doing this for my own personal edification as much for for anything else and you know it's incumbent upon me just like it is for everybody else to try to be as open-minded to humble ourselves and and to um and to uh, you know broaden our aperture on all of this. So I really appreciate you guys coming here today, and sharing openly and honestly and from the heart your experience and your
1: perspective.
2: And I hope you guys come back and talk to me a little bit more.
1: I, I appreciate being here, cool. man. This was this was good. It was good for me. Uh, you say, um, what can white people do? I think you're doing it. Um, you're sharing the, the the at the table. We're sitting at an actual table. Um, but it, it feels like a partnership in this conversation. You know what I mean? And I think that's important. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yep. Appreciate that. Um,
2: all right. So if you're digging on these guys, the best way to track them down and find them, Phil Allen Jr. on Twitter and Facebook. And Instagram. And phil com as well, right? Yep. And Byron?
0: Byron.cc. Yeah,
2: byron.cc, I like (laughs) that. Um, Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. And I I hope that you continue your advocacy.
1: Thank you. Thank you. All right,
2: peace. Bye. So that happened. We did that. How'd it go down for you? How was it? How are you feeling? Maybe let it sink in, you guys. Let it steep, people. Please check out the show notes on the episode page where I have enumerated a large catalog of resources, articles, books, films, and nonprofits related to today's discussion. Check out Phil's documentary, Open Wounds. It's on Vimeo On Demand and his spoken word poetry on YouTube. And let these gentlemen know how this conversation landed for you. You can do that on the socials. You can find Byron at Byron Davis 1 on Instagram. And Phil is at Phil Allen J R I G on Instagram and at Phil Allen jr on Twitter. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe rate and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube you guys. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. and you can support us on patreon at richroll.com forward/ slash donate. Thanks to everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show and creating all the clips we share on social media. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Ali Rogers for portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. By the way, Tyler is working on some new music. We might even have a new intro theme song. <gasps> Oh my God, I know that makes people really scared, but I think it might be time to try something new. Tyler's working on some cool stuff. So I hope to share that with you in the coming weeks. In the meantime, thank you for the love you guys. I appreciate you. I will see you back here in a couple days. When is it? Actually next week. This is the only episode this week. So I'll see you back here next week with another amazing episode. And until then, may the wisdom of today's conversation sink in. And may we all step into becoming our best version of an all-season love warrior. Peace.
1: Plants. Namaste.